Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. The Vicissitudes of a Soldier's Life Chapter 3 The regiment crossed the Humber by Barton and marched to Brig the first day. But I obtained leave to cross by Grimsby and called at Louth and Horncastle to see my relations and friends to whom I once more bade adieu, in order to join my regiment, and passing the 2nd Division at Deeping, on the 7th of October overtook, at Huntingdon, the 1st Division to which I belonged. We marched from Huntingdon to St Neots, Biggleswade and Hatfield, and arrived at Highgate on the 11th. This was headquarters, but five companies proceeded to Hampstead. I and a small part of my comrades went forward to Kilburn, and were quartered at the Red Lion, being only one mile from Hyde Park Corner. After dinner, several of our party went to view the metropolis. We walked to St James's Palace, through the park and horse guards, and viewed Westminster Bridge and Abbey, together with several places of note, and returned about seven o'clock in the evening, highly delighted with what we had seen. The next day, being Sunday, we halted, and were gratified with another view of the English capital. On Monday morning, the regiment marched forward, and about nine o'clock entered London with flying colours, crossed Blackfriars Bridge, and then marched to Bromley, the seat of Sir Thomas Trigg, our head colonel, who met us on the road, dressed in the regimental uniform. The whole of the officers dined with Sir Thomas, who would also have given a treat to the privates, but Lieutenant Colonel Farley prevented him, fearing the men might conduct themselves improperly if they had too much liberty given them. The next day we marched to a small town between Maidstone and Bromley, broke into detachments and went to different villages and public houses on the road. The landlord where I was quartered brought every man a pint of ale, saying he always behaved well to soldiers and had never lost anything by doing so. He added, I will give every man his dinner, 
But I, I cannot accommodate all with beds. I've plenty of clean straw and uh, those who sleep on it, they'll have a glass of gin each. This piece of liberality so pleased the men that they vowed they would do anything for such a good and worthy fellow as he. After dinner, the soldiers began to drink in company with some men and women who had been gathering hops. Before night, all were intoxicated, except myself and three others, who retired to repose about nine o'clock, leaving the rest in a state little better than that of madmen. I laid myself down on the chamber floor, with only a rug to cover me, but in about an hour after was disturbed by one of the men running into our room, crying for help, or that we should all be killed. Myself and another taking up our sidearms and bayonets, after rushing into the house, in which we found not one single soldier, forthwith proceeded into the street, where we heard a most dreadful screaming, evidently from a female, and on repairing to the spot whence the cries issued, found that some of the soldiers had laid siege to a farmhouse. One of the men, with his firelock, presented, declared he would fire if the woman did not open the door of the house. Another was kicking at it to break it in, and on inquiring what was the matter, I was told that a countryman had stolen a musket and taken shelter in the house. At length, having succeeded with difficulty in conducting the men away, I returned to my sleeping room and lay there laughing at the folly of drunkards, but I had not laid long before James Bracken, a man of our company, came into the room, drew a bayonet from its scabbard, put it under his coat and left in haste. I afterwards learned that Bracken, who is a papist, had fallen into a dispute with a man called Johnston, a Protestant, and that in the midst of their disputation, the bayonet having fallen from under Bracken's clothes, a battle ensued in which Johnston beat his foe completely and took his weapon from him. In the morning again, as the party was falling in, in order to march and join the regiment on the road, another dispute took place between the same men, and Bracken attempted to stab Johnston, who instantly raised his musket and brought his enemy level with the ground, where he lay a considerable time before he came to himself. He was then taken into the public house, and medical assistance was procured, but it was thought his wound would prove mortal. We left the man under the care of the landlord, and marched Johnston, a prisoner to the regiment. He was then sent to the rear guard, and, when we got to Maidstone, he had to lay under the market cross, instead of being at a public house. There is not, in many cases, in Ireland, much love lost on either side, between Papist and Protestant, and perhaps each has about equal cause for resentment against the other. And accordingly, in the present instance, Johnston's hatred of the Papist may be traced to the circumstance of his father and mother, with some other relations, having been burnt alive by some infuriated Romanists in the late Irish Rebellion, the recollection of which fact must naturally have rankled in Johnston's mind ever since. The latter was tried by a court-martial and sentenced to receive 300 lashes, but in a few days Bracken recovered and the other man, having previously borne a good character, was pardoned. I was quartered at the sign of the castle at Maidstone, the landlord of which was so unfeeling towards our poor women that he would not allow them to dine with us on any account. In return for this harsh treatment, we put him to all the trouble possible, causing him to provide breakfast, a thing not commonly done. The next morning we marched to Lenham. On the 17th we reached Ashford, and on the 18th Brabourne Lee's Barracks, our destined quarters. When at Hull, our regiment was made a light infantry regiment, here we had our regimental clothing altered and learnt to manoeuvre by the sound of the bugle 
instead of the word of command, and, in conjunction with the 85th, were taught the light infantry exercise and evolutions under the command or direction of General Baron de Rottenberg. At Christmas our new clothing was ready. It was completely altered, having instead of shoulder knots, wings, green tufts in the place of white ones, and bugles in the front of our caps instead of plates. We also gave in our arms and accoutrements, and received in return Japan muskets with double sides and a complete set of new accoutrements. One afternoon in April 1809, as two companies were firing ball cartridge, one of the pieces missed fire, and the man who held it, turning round to the rear, as was customary, to examine into the cause of it having only flashed in the pan, the musket immediately exploded, and dreadful to relate, the ball passed through the body of one of the men that were looking on. The poor fellow was immediately carried to the hospital, where, notwithstanding the exertions of regimental and other surgeons, he died before morning in the greatest agony. His name was Baker, he was a native of the neighbourhood of Lincoln, had about eighty pounds, which he willed to his sister, was buried in the churchyard of Bradbourne Lees, and his funeral was attended by most of the men in our regiment, who much lamented the loss of their worthy comrade. Bradbourne Lees is a small village. The barracks stood on a common between Ashford and Hythe, and were capable of containing three thousand men. They are five miles from Ashford, seven from Hythe, and twelve from Canterbury and are pleasantly situated in a fertile country, abounding with fruits of various sorts. Whilst at Brabourne Lees, I received a letter from my brother, informing me of my grandfather's death. He had not forgot me in his will, but left me fifty pounds, to be received when twenty-five years of age. My brother had been so kind as to put half a guinea into the seal of his letter, as a present, but, when the letter arrived, I found the seal had been broken open, and the money taken away. My inquiries at the post office for the money were quite unsuccessful, upon which I wrote to acquaint my friends at Louth with my misfortune, and they very kindly made up the loss, by sending a post office draft for the amount lost. Whilst we were here, the 50th Regiment arrived at these barracks, after the retreat and battle of Corunya, in a very distressed and miserable condition. In May, an order came that the brigade was to march 12 or 14 miles twice a week in full marching order, that we might become accustomed to fatigue, a sort of discipline very necessary for us who were expecting every day to be called out on foreign service. I have frequently known some of our men drop in the ranks, as if dead, through excessive heat and fatigue. On one occasion the 68th, 71st and 85th regiments marched eight miles, formed line and manoeuvred on a large common, then marched back to our barracks. Hundreds of us not having broken our fast or eating anything whatever during the time. About the 28th of June, the regiment received a route to march to Portsmouth for embarkation. So urgent was our march that we were not allowed to halt on Sundays, but marched forced marches until we reached Gosport and encamped near that place. Various were the reports of the people concerning the object of the expedition. Some said it was for one place and some for another. Nearly all the men of our regiment were lame, for, beside our usual load, sixty rounds of ammunition were added, and, what vexed us worst, was, this very ammunition was afterwards taken from us and fired into the sea by other regiments. It really was a great hardship to be treated in this way. On the day we arrived at Gosport, Colonel Farley was promoted to the rank of Brigadier General, 
and governor of one of the West India Islands, and Lieutenant Colonel Johnson promoted to the full command, and Major Richard Thompson, the second in command of the 68th Regiment. Our old commander was an excellent officer, well beloved by his men, who sincerely regretted their loss, which, however, was not badly supplied in the person of Colonel William Johnson, who was an officer that loved his men, and by whom he was respected in return. The day after Colonel Farley had left us, the regiment was inspected by the general of the division, who expressed his surprise that the men were so lame. The cause being explained, he was satisfied. The general left orders that the regiment was to fire ball cartridge two or three times. Accordingly, the next and subsequent days, we fired about 20 rounds into the sea. We did not, however, as at other times, fire singly, but by companies and grand divisions, and on three or four occasions, volleys of the whole regiment. This was to make us steady, and to prepare us for the time, which was at no great distance, when we should have to engage the enemy in reality. On one occasion, we were firing three deep, and one of the rear rank men, not looking well along his piece to see that he was clear of his front rank man, fired, and carried away two fingers and part of the hand of a poor fellow, who was taken with us abroad, and there died. Had he been left in the hospital at Portsmouth, he might most probably have recovered. In this camp we had a number of canteens and eating houses, or rather tents, but provisions were uncommonly dear. Roasted mutton one shilling and ninepence the pound, beef and other meat in proportion, so that a very little of it fell to my share. About the 13th of July, General Baron de Rottenberg arrived and took command of the Light Brigade. As soon as he came into the camp, the whole of our regiment and that of the 85th turned out of their tents and received the venerable baron with three times three cheers. He beckoned for us to cease, but our respect for him was too great so to do. Besides, we had no other way of testifying our approbation but by cheering him. He was an able general and in every respect a good officer. On the 15th, orders came for our embarkation on the following morning at two o'clock. On Sunday morning, July the 16th, we were ordered to strike the tents, pack them up, and deliver them with our camp utensils into the commissary stores. As soon as this was done, we set fire to the straw, so that the whole country seemed to be in a blaze. Our colonel reprimanded us for this freak, but he was too late, for all the straw that could be found was already consumed. At daylight the bugle sounded, the regiment then formed, and moved off towards the place of embarkation, which was on the Gosport side of the water. When we arrived at the waterside, the boats were ready to receive us. We then embarked by companies. The men were in high spirits and gave three cheers as they left the shore, the bugles and band playing until the regiment reached the Caesar of 90 guns. But oh, what an affecting scene took place between the married men and their families. It was truly distressing to see the anguish of the poor women at parting, some of whom were nearly frantic others fainting away, and their children crying by their sides or in their arms, so that the hardest heart must have been moved at that sight. Many of these pitiable creatures never saw their husbands more, and even before six weeks had passed over, numbers of them were widows, and their children orphans. On this occasion, my feelings nearly overcame me, and I really could not help rejoicing that I was a single man. If such, then, were the acuteness of the feelings of a mere looker-on, what must have been the feelings of the poor men themselves who had to be actors in this heart-rending scene. 
The whole of our regiment was put on board the Caesar, which mounted 90 guns. Her lower deck guns had been taken out to make room for the troops. We were 900 strong, the ship's company about 600, besides officers, making, in all, nearly 1,550 men on board this massive vessel. The name of the captain of the Caesar was Richardson, a very humane and good commander. We lay at Spithead until the morning of the 27th, when we weighed anchor and set sail, and on Friday evening the 28th arrived in the Downs. Here the fleet had collected in great force, for the purpose of sailing with the expedition to the island of Walcheron. Early on Saturday morning the fleet sailed in three divisions, one division at three o'clock, the other at four, and the last, the one I was in, about five o'clock. The fleet was so large that we could not all get on our way together. It was, perhaps, one of the largest fleets that has left England for many years, there being no less than 60,000 troops on board, and nearly 20,000 sailors and marines, making altogether about 80,000 effective men. About nine o'clock on Saturday evening, we let go our anchor within six miles of the shores of the island of Walcheron. During the night, a vessel ran foul of the Caesar, which caused a terrible shock, but no damage was done to either vessel. Next morning, we weighed anchor and sailed towards the north point of this island in order to effect a landing. Our vessel ran aground with such violence that at first it was thought she would have gone to pieces, but after straining herself very much, she was got off. The soldiers were fastened below in order to prevent confusion. We at length got to our destination and began to prepare for landing. All the flat-bottom boats in the fleet were put in readiness. Each boat had a cannonade fixed in its bow and was manned with a proper number of men to fire if occasion should require it. The whole of the boats belonging to the men of war and transports having got to their respective stations and received the troops, they began to collect by regiments and formed a line of boats, which reached a great distance. Each of the larger boats had a flag. The sight was uncommonly grand and had an imposing effect. By this time, a number of gunboats had collected to cover the landing. At length, the signal was given for the boats to advance to the shore in line, in doing which the only annoyance they met with was from a battery of three guns. The troops had no sooner effected a landing, which they did in good order and without loss, than they routed the enemy from their battery and caused them to fly in confusion. With the first division that landed were a number of sailors who pursued the enemy a considerable distance and greatly annoyed them. It now became our turn to land. The regiment, having received three days' provisions, 60 rounds of ammunition each and a store of good flints, together with a supply of liquor, we accordingly stepped into the boats and landed without an accident. About eight o'clock on Sunday evening, the 30th of July, 1809, and were compelled to lay all night on the sand without a tent or any other covering to protect us from the night air. We had left our knapsacks on board, having only our haversacks, canteens and rolled coats with us. We remained on the sandhills until the afternoon of the 31st. I had never seen anything to equal the appearance of our army before. It reached about four miles along these hills. In the afternoon, our company, with part of another and 40 of the 95th Rifle Corps, making in all about 200, were sent to join General Graham's brigade, consisting of the 3rd Battalion of the 1st Royals, the 5th and 35th Regiments. We were to act as riflemen to this brigade of heavy infantry. Towards evening, we went in quest of the enemy, 
and formed two or three times to attack their outposts, but they retreated without being brought to action. That night, we slept in the streets of a small village, but had a very strong guard and pickets to look out for the enemy, who were not more than about a mile from us. The next morning, we advanced at the head of the brigade, but had not proceeded far before we discovered a battery and several men standing at the guns. General Graham ordered the column to halt, and then sent to know who they were. When the party approached, the men ran off from the guns. They turned out to be only a number of country people who were frightened at the approach of our brigade. The column advanced until it reached the sand hills to the west of Flushing, and there found the enemy ready, prepared to receive us. Our cannon was ordered forward, and several shots were fired upon the foe. A number of the enemy were sheltered in a wood to our left. General Graham ordered the cannon to be turned, and to commence firing into it. He also sent a party to dislodge the enemy, and to force them into the main road. At this time the light troops were ordered forward, and in a few minutes we were, for the first time, engaged with the French army, for, I believe, nine-tenths, at least, of our regiment, had never been engaged before. The first onset very much terrified me, but gradually my fears subsided, and I became calm and deliberate. We fought along the sand hills for seven miles and took several batteries mounted with brass guns. One of the magazines blew up and caused a tremendous shock, something like an earthquake. To the right, between the sea and the hills, were a number of piles in ranks nearly as high as men and which had the appearance of soldiers at a distance. Several of us fired at them thinking they were the enemy, but we soon discovered our mistake. Yet we afterwards found we had not fired altogether in vain for there was a poor Frenchman laid behind the piles, with his brains blown out and lying in his cap. Shortly, we came within the range of the flushing batteries, but their own men being between us and the town, the guns were as yet silent. I entered a house for a drink, and there beheld a sight which affords some idea of the shocking devastation that must always mark a country which has the misfortune to become the seat of war. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It being a dairy farmhouse, there was standing in a room a large tub of buttermilk. But such was the hurry and confusion of the soldiers who had been there before me that they had broken every vessel in the house and the room was literally up to the ankles in buttermilk. 
and not one whole vessel remained to drink it out with. With great difficulty, however, I got my canteen full of milk and cider, and then ran after the party. About this time, the cannon from the garrison began to play upon us with a great fury. As I was going along, I had to pass a flagstaff and signal post full of blocks and tackles. Scarcely had I got under it, when a 24-pound shot from the battery struck the flagstaff and killed and wounded several of the soldiers that were marching under the hill. Their cries were dreadful. A little further on, a soldier of the 5th Regiment received a cannonball shot straight through the centre of his body, which, as he laid upon the earth, presented a horrid spectacle, for we could see the ground through his carcass. Still, advancing along, I perceived a man walking on the brow of a rising ground, when suddenly a shot came, struck the ground about ten inches below his feet, knocked up his heels and sent him rolling down the hill, at the bottom of which he got upon his legs again and ran after his regiment, not having received any injury whatsoever. As soon as we arrived at the end of the hills, we were obliged to stop, for by passing the corner we should have exposed ourselves to the main battery of the enemy. As it was, the carnage was dreadful. One of the grenadier companies of our brigade alone lost 40 men, killed and wounded. Therefore the loss of the three regiments could not fail to have been very great had we not sheltered ourselves in this spot. About this time, one of General Graham's aide-de-camps received a very severe wound and was carried to the rear. The loss of the light troops, however, was comparatively small, although at the head of the brigade and in every way exposed to the enemy's fire. The loss sustained by our company was about 10 wounded. Being light infantry, we took every advantage, while the heavy troops were necessarily exposed, having to keep their ranks and to follow as our supports. There was with us a man called Murphy, who had long wished he might be killed in a first engagement. His wish was partly granted, for he received a severe wound and had to undergo an amputation near the shoulder. After we had driven the enemy into the town, I and three others were sent to bury the dead and to take care of the wounded men, but when we came to the places, we found the dead had already been buried and the wounded as well taken care of, as circumstances would admit. In returning to our company, we had to run over an open ground that was completely exposed to the main battery of the enemy's garrison, but we passed over it without any injury whatever, although we had some very narrow escapes indeed. On the left flank of our company was an orchard, with a barn standing near it, upon which the enemy kept such a heavy fire that Colonel Hay thought prudent to have it destroyed, and sent orders to Captain Hawkins to see that it was done. The barn was accordingly set on fire and consumed to ashes, there were two calves consumed with it. The sufferings of these dumb animals were great, and affected the captain even to tears. Had he known beforehand that they were in the barn, every effort would have been made to rescue them. The evening coming on, the firing ceased on both sides, but we had strong guards and pickets in our front to watch the motions of the enemy. Captain Hawkins gave orders for his men to form in an open field, and for every other man to keep awake the rest to lay down, but it was with difficulty that any of us, after the fatigues of the day, could keep awake. About midnight a supply of bread arrived, and each man received his allowance, also a small quantity of raw bacon and onions, which were very acceptable. Soon after daylight in the morning, a party of the enemy made an attempt to take some of our guns. We charged them nearly to the walls of the garrison, and took several prisoners, amongst whom was a French officer, who would not give up his sword to one of the first royals. 
The soldier instantly lifted up his musket and ran the unfortunate officer through the body with his bayonet, exclaiming at the same time, I will send your soul to the devil! Our officers did not approve of this savage act of cruelty, for although the soldier might by some be considered as having done his duty, and even as a hero into the bargain, yet he was undoubtedly a hardened monster, and no man of a right mind or true bravery would say that heroism consists in such conduct. After thus repulsing the enemy and driving them back into the town, the cannon and mortars from their batteries opened a most tremendous fire, which continued for some time, but we, being partly sheltered in the ditches, did not on this occasion sustain any serious injury. The enemy at this time had a strong picket under cover of their guns, who kept up a constant discharge of musketry, the balls of which whistled over our heads, sometimes lodging in the trees and cutting the small branches, so that we were compelled to remain close to the banks for safety. It is not unusual to relieve the advance posts by daylight, but at one o'clock the relief came, and we were ordered to the rear about two miles, to cook our provisions, and to rest for the night. By some means or other, the enemy learnt that the guards and pickets were relieving, and instantly opened a fire upon us hotter, if possible, than ever, and, I am sorry to say, not without doing some execution on our men. This compelled us to retreat to the rear one by one, or the consequences might have been much worse, for their cannon could reach us a mile in the rear of the advance posts, so that all the time we were retreating, our backs were exposed until we had got out of the range of their batteries. I at length arrived in safety at our little camp, received my provisions, cooked them, and had a good night's rest in the open air. Here we lay until the next evening, and then joined the main body of our regiment, which was encamped about one mile to the right of the Middleborough Road, and only just out of the reach of the enemy's cannon, the shot frequently falling within 100 yards of the camp ground. When the party joined the regiment, great was our grief on hearing that several of our best comrades were no more. The main body of the regiment, with a part of the 85th, drove the enemy before them on the Middleborough Road, and advanced the very gates of Flushing, at which point our colonel, hoping to secure possession of the drawbridge, made a vigorous push, and was within two minutes of doing it, but the enemy drew up the bridge in time to save it and thus left the 68th and part of the 85th regiments exposed to the shot, shell and musketry of the garrison, which did considerable execution. We had one man wounded at the gate of the town. The enemy took him into their hospital and used him very well. There was not much praise due to our commander on this occasion. His courage certainly was great, but he might have lost the most of his regiment by this rash effort. After this, the regiment was employed in building batteries and throwing up breastworks and trenches, and continued occupied in this way until the works were completed. Chapter 4 There was from our camp a narrow lane, fenced on each side by a quick hedge. This lane was very straight, and two of the enemy's guns commanded it, which greatly annoyed us. But in order to protect ourselves from their destructive fire, we built in the lane walls made of bags filled with earth, and these walls extending from opposite sides of the lane, but not quite across it, and being placed in alternate opposition, instead of exactly facing each other, left a passage sufficiently wide for the troops to pass and repass. One night, as we were finishing a battery of twelve guns, one of our men, named Duffin, fell from the top of it into the pond in front of the works, and was with difficulty taken up, but he sustained no injury, 
more than getting wet. Whilst we were in our camp, a corporal of Captain Goff's company, who had been accused of cowardice, was led by the colonel in front of each company at the morning parade, the colonel saying as he passed, Soldiers, behold a coward! The corporal was then taken in front of the whole regiment, his stripes were taken off, and he was sent ignominiously to his company as a private. I have heard it said that he was not to blame, but that an officer was the guilty person who had contrived to blame the poor corporal. One day, while employed in building batteries, trenches and other works, a bomb shell fell on an old house. It burst, and our first major being near it was wounded in the right arm and obliged to undergo amputation very near the shoulder. About the 12th of August, everything was in readiness for commencing the bombardment. The bomb vessels were ordered to be ready to cooperate with the land batteries. In the afternoon of the 13th, being Sunday, the batteries opened up upon the town. Though partially, until about 9 o'clock that night, our regiment was in readiness to act in case of a sortie. Between 9 and 10, the thunder of our battering guns was terrible. The guns of the enemy were not altogether silent. There was a mortar battery near us, from which the shells were thrown as fast as possible, and at intervals we could hear the dreadful cries of the inhabitants from the town. Lord Chatham had, previous to the commencement of the bombardment, given leave for the inhabitants to quit the town, but the French governor would not allow it, and in consequence, hundreds of the poor people were killed and wounded. No one can conceive the horrors of a bombardment without witnessing them. On this very night, I saw from 12 to 16 bombshells in the air together, and at the same time, from 30 to 40 cannon shots were thrown into the town, which destroyed houses, churches, and everything far and near. But what astonished me the most were Congreve rockets, which I'd never seen fired before, and which, when the rocket battery began to play, completely illuminated the air and presented a very grand and curious appearance. The rockets had not played more than 15 minutes before one of the churches caught fire and in little time was in a complete blaze. The cannons, mortars and rockets from the land batteries, together with the dreadful bombardment from the shipping, continued to play all night and did not cease until about 2 o'clock on Monday afternoon. During this period, some of our batteries were so burned that it was found necessary to repair them. However, being made of nothing but kids staked down and filled with earth, they were soon repaired and put into good condition. Soon afterwards, the enemy sent a truce with terms of capitulation, but these terms were not acceded to. There was a thorough stillness on both sides during the whole of the afternoon, and until about 12 o'clock at night, when our batteries opened as they had never done before, and continued to play upon the town for several hours, but at length the governor sent conditions and offered to surrender, promising that the troops under his command should, within a specified time, be marched out of the garrison with the honours of war, the officers to retain their personal property and the soldiers their knapsacks. These conditions were accepted by the British commander and on the morning of the 15th of August, the British army was put in motion and assembled on the right of the town in order to receive the French garrison as they marched out. In a few hours, the bands and drums of the enemy saluted our ears, and the enemy themselves soon afterwards appeared with two pieces of cannon, the governor and generals riding at the head of their men, every one of the latter bearing his musket, and the officers their drawn swords, the regimental colours flying at the same time, 
a sight altogether exceedingly sublime. They marched to the beach, and there laid down their arms, of which we took possession, and put them into the military stores. The whole of the French soldiery of the garrison were embarked on board, a part of the fleet, and then sent to England prisoners of war. After having embarked the enemy, we returned to our camp with light hearts, highly gratified with our success in having taken this very formidable fortification, a work, the execution of which, including the labour of building batteries, throwing up trenches, and reducing this stronghold itself, occupied us only about twelve days. Although close to the gates, I never was in the town of Flushing, which is situated on the north bank of the western Scheldt, and is surrounded by a ditch filled with water, very wide and deep. The ramparts wore a beautiful appearance, being covered with grass, but the houses and barracks looked dismal indeed. The island of Walcheron is nine miles long and eight broad. The soil is very fertile, producing all the kinds of grain, vegetables and fruits that are grown in England. But the island being low is subject to frequent inundations. Indeed, the enemy had made an attempt to flood it during the siege, but were frustrated in their design. About three days after the surrender of Flushing, the regiment received orders to march to South Beverland, and accordingly proceeded through Middleborough, which is the capital of this island, and one of the most delightful towns I ever saw. Everything appearing clean and neat, and the houses and shops being decorated in a very beautiful manner. I could understand the language of the inhabitants almost as well as my own, for hundreds of their words were so near to ours in sound and meaning that we could not possibly misapply theirs. We arrived at a certain place on the River Scheldt, and were conveyed in boats over into the island of South Beverland, and took up our quarters in three small villages near Goes, the capital of Beverland, where we remained about three weeks. Whilst in these villages, we had a man punished for stealing two or three apples, our officers being very severe. In this island, milk was very cheap. I have bought a pension full of good milk for six dites, equal to three farthings in English money. Potatoes, onions, bread, butter, cheese, coffee, tobacco, hollands and beer were also very cheap and plentiful. Indeed, this expedition was altogether well supplied with provisions and military stores of every description. But, although the army suffered nothing from the want of the necessaries of life, yet they suffered greatly in another way. For in the beginning of September, a dreadful and fatal disease, being an intermitting fever in ague, and not alike the fenugue, broke out amongst them, and several of the men died daily. I was amongst the first that were attacked by this disease, and laid some days in a barn, without partaking of any food whatever, and was brought so exceedingly low that I was almost insensible to anything that was going on amongst my comrades. I was at length taken to a hospital, about three miles distant, where the sick had been collected in great numbers. The first night of my being there, a Roman Catholic priest came to absolve a man of our regiment who was in a dying state, and paid great attention to the poor man. After having absolved him, he advised us to abstain from drinking cold water or eating too much fruit, and we could not but respect the good priest for his advice. The horrors of this place caused me, in some measure, to forget my own complaint, or nearly so, and I thought to be sure I must die, if I remain much longer in this doleful barn. The next day the doctors came round to visit their patients. I and three others said we were better, but we must have been deceived and misled by our feelings, excited as they were by the terrible scene around us. 
The doctors therefore ordered that we should be taken in a wagon to another barn about four miles distant, but still there I was no better, but rather worse, and though I felt no pain, yet was always low and feeble, wasting away, until my body was reduced to a mere skeleton. At last, an order came for the regiment to march to Tavir, in the north of the island of Walcheron. The wagons came, and the sick men were put into them, at which time I was so weak that I could not help myself. After a tedious journey, we arrived at the ferry, where boats were in readiness to take us over the river Scheldt. In passing, which it was my fortune, to lose my knapsack, and everything belonging to me, except an old shirt. From this point we soon reached Hever General Hospital, which was in a large church, at the very threshold of which, as I entered, I saw the corpses of two soldiers lying on the floor, with their feet uncovered, a sight that made me so sick and ill, that I thought I should have fainted. So much was my mind affected by this bad scene, that had I been in the possession of a thousand worlds, I would have given them at that moment to have been in any part of old England. We were soon provided with comfortable beds and bedding, and receiving a proper diet, I began to recover. But one afternoon, a man of our regiment set about washing his shirt, and three of us imprudently followed his example, for which we were severely punished, every one of us being taken the same evening with a relapse of the ague, which continued to shake us every day for several weeks. I believe I did not eat one pound of bread for eighteen days, I had my senses frequently taken from me, and undoubtedly must have given up as past recovery. At length, orders came for the sick men to be embarked for England. The doctors came round to select those whom they thought capable of being removed, and I was one of the number. The joyful news infused new life into me, and the next day we were put on board a transport which had been fitted up for the purpose. I really was pleased to leave this place, for it was dreadful to see the poor men dying. I have known nine men die out of our hospital, and from twenty to thirty be interred daily from the different hospitals, so that this enemy was actually worse than the United French Army, with all their guns, mortars and instruments of death put together, for our regiment lost only ninety killed and wounded at the taking of Flushing, but this foe actually destroyed more than 300 of our brave and well-disciplined comrades, besides leaving a great number more in such a state as made them forever unfit for service again. I never knew what disease was until I had the flushing sickness, of which I was ill for 12 months. It was the opinion of medical men that those who were afflicted by this disorder would never recover, or be so well as they had been before. This might be the case in some instances, but many of our men recovered and afterwards passed through the fatigues of war, not having one day's sickness. We lay at anchor in the harbour about three days, but the heat of the transport being so crowded with men had a bad effect upon us. However, the thought of once more seeing our native land caused us to put up with every inconvenience cheerfully and contentedly. About the 10th of October we weighed anchor and left the island of Walcheron. On our passage nothing remarkable occurred. One of my comrades died, and I was present when the funeral service was read over him, in which, instead of saying, we therefore commit his body to the ground, it was, we therefore commit his body to the deep. When the corpse was lowered into the sea, I had some of the most unpleasant and uncomfortable feelings imaginable, and was so much affected, that I thought I should never look up again. He was only about twenty years of age, what must have been the anguish of his poor mother, when she heard the distressing news that her son was no more. 
but I forbear further expressions of commiseration for this event, which was only one amongst thousands of others that would wring the hearts of parents and widows thus miserably deprived of their sons and husbands forever. Oh, the horrors and devastations of war! When shall they have an end? About the 15th we got within sight of England, the sweet and delightful land of our homes, and towards evening dropped anchor opposite Dover, in Kent. How comfortable were my feelings under the reflection that I had once more reached my native shores. Sleep scarcely closed my eyes during the night, on account of the constant rush of ideas that passed through my mind as it dwelt, at some times, on the pleasure that I was now about to reap in the society of my relatives at home, and, at others, on the scenes of distress and danger which I and my companions in arms had been the eyewitnesses of, and actors in, during the late expedition to Walcheren. In the morning we disembarked, marching up to Dover Castle, and took up quarters in the barracks, which appeared like a palace to which we had been accustomed during the last four months, and from the time of our leaving Brabourne Lees to this period. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.